0: I'm Shannon Perry from Gazebos, and you're listening to the Music A to Z podcast. I don't say Z.
1: Hello and welcome to the Music Data Z podcast. I am Steve Nagel. I'm John Sanders. And I'm Matt Storm. How's it going, guys? It's going.
0: I'm all right yeah a little Good. tired I haven't been sleeping very well but oh no it's okay That's work's, a shame
1: yeah you works know. hard work is hard work is really hard yeah yeah um, can, Day I, day jobs taking a lot out of me but I, but I'm enjoying the new job yeah well, well I, I can join in that but it's Sunday it is Sunday right yeah so yeah. you're better than you would right would be otherwise right I did actually get some sleep last night which helps
0: well forget you guys I actually worked this morning oh well for sucks to be for you, I guess. Here, yeah 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 well, some of us have nine to five jobs, or nine to six, nine to seven, depends on. Well, some of what us, it goes too. some of
2: us
1: here also own their own business. <laughs> That's true. There's that. That's true. You I do. Get, yeah. Some of us here work for demanding startups, but are trying to get ahead every single day, every mm. second. But you can actually clock in and out. I don't, I don't get that luxury. Well, the weather's nice, right? The weather's nice. The it's weather not that cold out The weather is anymore. a balmy 38 degrees, mostly cloudy in Vancouver. Uh, not unlike certain other places on the continent. Places that are, of course, tangential to our collective experience in Vancouver, correct? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Should we go on to the music news? Yes, actually. Let's do that. All right, we have one item in music news, at least it's the only thing that I felt worth discussing, and even then, really, y'all leave it up to you. It's kind of questionable. It appears that the other remaining Beatle has had a fairly good week. Ringo Starr, catching up to his bandmate 21 years later, has been knighted. I did see that, yeah. I, I saw that he had gotten so knighted. kindly refer to him as Sir Ringo. Sir Ringo or Or if you're going by his actual name, Sir Starkey. I like Sir Starkey. Sir yeah, Starkey. Right? I mean, Wait, Sir so Star
2: is cool. So no?
1: Ring, Star,
0: Star is not his last name. It's Starkey. He's Richard Starkey, not he's, Ringo Star. Star right. Yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah.
1: I thought he, though, did get it officially changed, or no, he just goes by that. It's just a... That's a good story. question. I don't know I if he know. actually changed his name or if he was just born that way. i It only says in every... Like, they feel the need to throw that Starkey back at him. I'm only curious because,
0: like, I work in entertainment,
1: and, like, burlesque performers don't legally
0: change their name, but for all intents and purposes, that's their name. They go by that, they don't respond to the other, they don't use the other. So I'm curious if that's the same for Ringo. Does Is that just his name? Did he change it officially? I think it's
2: been a uh, half a century or so that he's been going by the name Ringo Starr. So it's his s- name. I
0: assume assume he will respond to it. Well, no, yeah, but what I wonder is if there are legal
1: documents stating Ringo Starr. But will he respond to sir? It's kind of new. Probably not. Probably not. Well, he did say, because it comes in the form of a medal and you can wear it around your neck. And when asked to comment, he said, it means a lot. That's not a bad Ringo impression. No. I'll admit. He also said, "I'll be wearing it at breakfast." <laughs> I mean, if <laughs> I had, a worse a worse Ringo impression.
0: <laughs> I mean, if I had one, I would wear it all the time. Like, I why wouldn't you? I, are you kidding? I'd get a suit of armor to wear, <laughs> just cause True. I'd have an excuse. I have a curious question that you, Steve, may or may not know. Have there been non Brits knighted? Or is it only Brits? It's no, a that is a, thing. Thing. It's it's a, British a British thing. It's a British thing. There are okay.
1: other medals, there are other awards that can go to people who are born in other countries, but but not the knighthood. The that knighthood is, like, is for only British. for Brit. It's yeah, the, yeah, okay. The British Commonwealth and everything. Got it. All the Beatles British. got like the MBE or something like that, which stands for something that I probably should know. But it was an award that all the Beatles got back in the mid '60s. That sounds way too long for the, that acronym. MBE. The yeah. MBE. Yeah. Yeah. We well, can't no, do you. Three, your explanation. Do three oh, letters. Well, yeah. Technically, three syllables. So I didn't look it up. All right, that's fine. Um, do we have any other music news? Anything else we want to discuss? Anything going on in your lives? I mean, I've been.
0: There's a few new albums that I've gotten really into. Um, the Decemberists just put out a new record, which uh, I've always been a fan of theirs, and so I'm always excited for new music of theirs. I started really getting into Andrew WK's new record. You know, it's the same kind of pop-inspired metal that's really upbeat and really positive. Have
1: we done these on previous Alphabet Runs? I can't recall. I. Don't think so. One of us should know, seeing as we do them. Anyway, uh, let's go (laughs) further on to what you've been waiting for. Today, we are imbibing the rock and music anthology of Eric Satie. he doesn't have any albums but I'd do it in a heartbeat if he did. No, instead we are doing the mopey 90s alt rock folk equivalent frankly Elliot Smith. she locked the car
2: to slip past The two with me quiet. The
1: lights in the head I might have pressed you guys into this. Was that so or were you like dead set on any alternatives for letter E? I mean, for me, there were, there are definitely E bands that I'm a fan of
0: but honestly, to put them under a microscope, like, I'd suggested, Eve 6 because they have a short discography um, and then Eve, um, not Eve 6, Everclear as well and Everlast these are all... artists. There's a
2: lot... There are a lot, a lot of, of a lot EVs. EVs. Actually, Every's. yeah.
1: yeah. Something or another. Just well, start adding I, some I was going to suggest Elton John, and then I realized no, that... No, we're, Our lives oh. are short. I mean, <laughs> I love Elton John. Don't get me wrong. I am actually a very big fan of his work, but like... Just to get through the heyday would take. Well, I knew forever. we would all agree on it. Like, I knew that, but we would die. We would die in cold in the ground. Well, like, just don't shoot me, I'm only the piano player is like a two hour
2: discussion
0: by itself. Just that album. Just that one piece of work. And then will we do his musical stuff? Like, will we do the Lion King musical yeah, and right. the movie? All because the- he wrote the music for both. Yeah. Like, he's yeah.
2: got, he's got, uh, he's uh, written
0: several soundtracks, as I recall, not just those movies. 25 movie albums? And musical, yeah. No, that wasn't happening. No.
1: So I picked something that was, I think, a little more reasonable.
0: Well, the funny thing about Elliot Smith also is it's an artist that I haven't thought about in a long time. Neither. and But I also wasn't as familiar with,
1: although considering his... Discography, I should have been. That's what's so weird here because I got into Elliott Smith probably around 2002, 2003. It was a friend of mine, actually, uh, probably credit, yeah, my friend TJ on this. He's the guy, he handed me a 30 gig hard drive in high school. Not an external hard drive, but like one of a stock of spare internal hard drives that he had lying around. I think the brand name of this hard drive was MaxDoor. Or something, and it was loud. It clicked like crazy, and sounded like it was going to break every single song that I played. Um, so eventually, I had to copy the music onto another hard drive. But it was just this massive amount of music that was given me at a time in which I was like soaking up all bands ever. And on that album, the only reason I got into Elliott Smith was because of that glorious hard drive. And I remember slowly going through it. Like it took me six months to go through everything. And Elliott Smith was like, "All right." It- Everything else was like kind of loud, and this was like, alright, this is gentle. This is something I can fall asleep to. This is is 2 a.m. in the morning music. This stuff is like... Uh, it, it, it was mopey at a time, I think, when most teenagers probably need that.
0: <laughs> well, it would have been right up my alley when it came out, uh, you know, we'll get into the specific records, but when he first released his first record in the mid-90s, that would have been right up my alley, and I completely missed it. Like, I didn't really hear his stuff. I heard his stuff in passing, but th- when we decided to do this was the first time I had ever dug deep into his discography.
1: Well, it was the first, like, counterpoint, in other words, to, like, the loud stuff. Because yeah. you need, like, you need the energy at yeah. that age, but then this was, like all right just just cool it a little bit well elliot was like i i heard that name bandied about all over the place growing up like signature 90s yeah 20s Mm -hmm. even early
2: 30s like i've heard his name and i was like oh yeah no i i know elliot smith yeah sure i don't know anything about elliot i did not realize this guy's discography at all i knew maybe three songs the entire five albums we listened to Mm -hmm. i knew three of them one of them I knew was his. The other two I just recognized. That was the same for me. From other positions. Like, I th- I thought it was
1: somebody I was versed in. And I was very much proven wrong. So were are- a few things that came around later. Like, for instance, uh, you know, we're into Mr. Robot really heavily. Me and you at least, yeah. John. And I remember they used... Uh, everything means nothing to me. And I actually, it's weird because I remember hearing the song at the time, we're talking about back in 2002, 2003, then I forgot it for a really, really long time. And then I was passing by the TV because I don't think I was watching that episode. I unfortunately caught a little bit ahead uh, and it's spoilers. But anyway, I heard the song and I was like, what is that? What is that? My I poked, my head yeah. poked up at like a gopher. I was like, what the hell is that? And then finally it brought me back to Elliott Smith. And it was like, it kind of got me on a semi-recent Elliott Smith kicks so much so that when the letter E came about, it was actually the first thing I thought of, come to think of it, before Elton John. Because and it was, was fresh like, in your mind. Yeah, but then I was like, no, that would be a real me thing. We should do Elton John. And then I was like, no, that's crazy. And then I was like, wait, is it so much a me thing? Because we all have our 90s alts sensibilities. Well, and, and the funny It ended thing, up being the correct choice. The funny thing for
0: me is um, listening to the first album, *Robin Candle, I have definitely heard that whole album before. Because I recognized most of the record but i didn't go oh this record like definitely someone must have played that for me when when i was in high school because it sounded so familiar. Right. But I didn't like I didn't readily just go, oh, I know this song and that song and this song. It just it had a familiar sound to me. Now that's also because it's absolutely of the time of the stuff I was listening to in high school. So it could just be it's reminiscent of stuff that was familiar to me that wasn't him as well, because there's some overlap there.
1: Well one of the ways I suppose the rest of the world might know Elliot Smith, apart from just simply knowing him, is uh the Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. Goodwill Hunting apparently he did a track that was like turned into an orchestral ver- version by Danny Elfman. I remember and it that. And was, it was very weird, and I, I didn't even know that he had any, like, dabblings in film, but it was, like, Oscar-nominated. Mm-hmm. So that was his, like, big, big claim to fame, but apart from his, you know, general expansive indie following, which was, I think... Uh, extremely influential for a lot of early 2000s music. Basically, he's associated with the whole lo-fi thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not necessarily slowcore, although that comes up, I think, a little bit later in his discography. He's just like, I don't know, he's the signature mope. And for anyone that wanted a mope, he was the perfect mope. I mean, knowing how much you love
0: Jeff Buckley, and now knowing you like Elliot Smith, a lot of it makes sense. Oh, and it's even sadder there, because Jeff
1: Buckley only got to have that one One. full, like, full fledged out album, Grace,
0: but they're both artists who are very steeped in mope and lo-fi yeah. and and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, Actually, Grace is probably still my one of my favorite albums full time. It's just in, like that was his first and uh, only like album and then yeah. he didn't get the chance to even go beyond that. That's what makes him kind of such a tragic and also larger than life figure. I feel that Elliot Smith, he was on that train, but it just, I don't know. He got his five in there. He got yeah. five albums and that was about what we could fit into the last couple of weeks and uh, then there was one album, and we'll discuss this briefly at the end, that he had about 30 or 40% completed before uh, he died, very tragically in ways that I, I, I am hesitant to compare to other artists at the time, although it sure. seems like it was is how a lot of artists did did kind of split off at the end. Um, I'm not going to talk about it too heavily, because we don't want this to be... Uh, I mean, it's, it's sad. It's, yeah. it's very sad to be blunt. I'm not and... going to call it a death train here, but yeah. but he did some amazing work during his life, and I think uh, I, I'm kind of sad that, as with a great many other artists, I found out about him right after he died, and the yeah. gravity of it didn't hit me at, like, that age.
0: Well, a small anecdote about discovering artists after they'd passed. I would forgotten that Freddie Mercury actually died in my lifetime until I looked up, um, I do a 90s trivia, and I looked up The Show Must Go On, which came out in 99, Yeah, and I'd forgotten that he he passed pretty much right after that record came out, and it just didn't, because he's always been this legend in my mind and one of my favorite singers, mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, he was dead before I even, and no, he lived in my lifetime, and like, it's just weird to think about that with artists who have this kind of... Um, qu- larger-than-life quality. And there's a sense of that to Elliot Smith's work. Like, there's this legend to it. And even though he passed in our lifetime, it, you know, same with Kurt Cobain. It feels like it was forever ago because of this legacy. And yeah. that
2: actually leads me into one of my first
0: impressions of Elliot Smith. It felt like Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Calm down. Yeah, like the well, like think in utero and and the tracks that were on that record, their last record, it was mm. they were much slower and lower key. There was still some screaming stuff,
1: but like he he was definitely more mellowed then. Yeah, I think it had something to do. And this is actually what's kind of interesting because yeah, if you're going off like first impressions for the first album, I thought it was very weird how. Delicate he starts off his solo career, mm-hmm. but then you remember it's like a solo career because he did have a band prior to that a band called heat miser um, Which I did not know about until doing this research But I just wanted to throw that name out there for those who are curious about his previous life Because he didn't start off uh, as a solo career at like age 18. He started off more around like age 25 mm-hmm. So he, he had some chops by this point and also another thing I found out in the course of this He played more instruments than I thought he played Clarinet, piano, bass guitar drums and harmonica so a lot of these extra layers you're hearing it's him yeah it's right all him. it's all him um which i suppose should go in hand in hand with you should expect with the solo project but again today solo projects often mean that you bring in session musicians to fill out the rest oh of yeah the stuff
0: or like but he
1: was a layerer like he liked layering things over himself himself that's how he experimented early on well
0: yeah and i mean there are bands like i mean even the even though andrew wk goes under his namesake he has a band that's always his band so it can go either way but yeah he was definitely someone who did
1: everything on his yeah. end for the most part well it just shocked me that he was good at anything else besides his guitar, obviously, right. and his vocal cords, um, which I think is another signature thing to talk about here because he is, I think, identified, if anyone was going to like say, ah, that's Elliot Smith, and I guess what jogged my memory, for instance, when I heard Everything Means Nothing to Me on that <laughs> Mr. Robot episode, I was like, that that sound, that that falsetto, it's, it's, what is it? And it was described by, I believe it was all music, as whispery spider web thin delivery, which I thought was a really, really good way that's, of putting that's it. That's a good way of describing it. Because I'm so su- tired of just saying things are falsetto. <laughs> <laughs> or just saying,
0: like, they're low or wispy or yeah. grainy. Yeah, yeah, I know. They- so whispery,
1: adding that extra syllable. <laughs> that's a certain something, right? Um, but even apart from that, I think there's something more about his songwriting. That mm-hmm. is what really, really got me. It's what uh, hooked me onto that first album way back in 02, um, the album that was from 94, and that is uh, Roman Candle. It, it It felt almost like... A 90s spin on that 1970s folk pattern that was around a lot, probably, like, exemplified by Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. And I feel, in many ways, it accomplishes the same thing, because Simon and Garfunkel, like, they were not pop by any stretch. They had some choruses that were, like, really easy to just flow over you and wash over you. I, th- I feel like this accomplished the same thing, but it's not, like, the same flavor of Simon and Garfunkel. It's a, it's, its own thing, and I feel like it was its own thing even as of... The, the first album here of Roman Candle. Well, one of the big differences
2: between the two is that he's not harmonizing. He's he's not building upon any other vo- vocal pattern. He's doing him. And it's definitely more ragged, and it's definitely rougher. He, he has, uh, um, he's got rocks in his throat when he sings. He's got a little bit of loss in fidelity when you're listening to him. It's great for it because it does identify him a little bit more uniquely. But at the same time, I definitely see the comparison to old school folk because that's what you kind of want to get out of folk from the 1970s, 60s, 50s, what have you. You want to get something that feels very gritty, very
1: uh, real. No, I but true. if you were going to like isolate the difference, I do think it has a lot to do with that. Because if you just compare the, like, the vocal stylings of, let's hey, say, either yeah. Paul Simon or Art Garfunkel, like, what you have is really just kind of a straight delivery in many mm. ways like they sing about really sad things very often but yet it's just a straight delivery i don't hear a lot of falsetto in any of their work they just sound kind of even tempered throughout and it's really more the content and maybe the chord changes that are what sell but then here it's it's him it's his vocal cracking it's it's all of the the, the curlicues that he might throw in there that really aren't meant to be fancy but are meant to show so vulnerability. Well, yeah. The, the evenness is more in the instrumentation. His vocals,
0: he does tend to have a bit of a range and move all over. And it's important to point out that when John says that there's rocks in his throat, but it's not like a Tom Waits kind of deep kind of grunge. It's it's definitely on the higher end. It's maybe more pebbles in his throat because it's well, the it's, sense of that there's a graininess to it.
1: I think he, John said that. <laughs> I think that's yeah, that exact word, it's, that exact it's, phrase.
2: It's fine grit sandpaper yeah. as opposed to something that's really going to tear you up because it, it still goes along smoothly. But there's an
0: abrasive. This. so the
2: sandpaper is actually a good descriptor i think the abrasive also steps in with the guitar work because yeah. of how simple it is it's just flat out simple in so many instances and in, especially in this first album where it's it's eighth notes
1: so many times it's, it feels like it's just eight notes. See, I didn't get that so much from the first album. That's to me, that's, album that's really more of a second album thing. That. Like, I feel like he even receded a little bit, which is why I, th- I think we're on a couple different uh, threads of this conversation here, because in one way, we did, you did get us talking about his his vocals, which I started saying, then, you, yeah. then I got away from because then yeah. I wanted to go to songwriting, so you finished the vocal thing. Thank you. But the songwriting is actually, I think, what exemplifies Roman Candle. It's not made up right. of eighth notes. It's made up of what I would call a digestible yet wholly more advanced than pop folk kind of thing it's not pop Mm -hmm. like it is not pop folk but you can be consumed that way because of the way the songs are very concise they and they i don't think he breaks from uh, from chorus verse structure really too much, although there are times in which they're blurred. Like it just one song, or one section rather, flows into the next and you're not quite sure there was a change there. But it's always there, it always happens on a dime, you could retrace it if you had to, but you might not experience that in the moment. And I think that's what makes this a more involving listen. Uh, but f- but songwriting wise it's the phrase structure within those individual sections that's what makes him unique that's that's where this stood out to me as he's a different kind of artist as a first album he doesn't have to like learn the chops on that kind of thing it's always been him from the beginning
0: well yeah i think with roman candle specifically too that first track is really more involving and it pulls you in whereas when he gets to the different no names from one to four Four, I think one, two, three are back to back and then four is a song separated. Those are really tightly connected. Like from track to track, they sound different, but they have a clear through line and a ton of similarities. I think that also really helps pull this record together for me and why I think maybe when I heard it again and assumed I had heard it before, it's because all of those tracks knit together so well, including the others as well.
1: might be a tonal similarity, but I think they have different moods.
0: Yeah, for like. sure. Absolutely different moods. I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think also what's really interesting about this first record is just, it's a tight 30 minutes in the sense that, it, like, it doesn't really drag on or over say it's welcome. Most of the tracks are between two and three minutes. They, you know, they don't over-repeat. You know, if there's a repeat on a chorus or a verse, it's, he adds little, um little notable differences, though he doesn't change it up completely. I never felt bored at any moment. And I I was getting there by the end of the album. Now, granted, it's only about a half
2: hour long, so we're not talking about a big investment of time here. But even from the first track, he gets a little bit repetitive on the chorus work. It's only because of his vocal style that I remain interested throughout the album. But I wanted a little bit more. I... I at this point, he's got the emotion being portrayed in his vocals. He has the emotion definitely present in the guitar work. But I don't
1: really feel like there's a whole lot of upper-tier lyrical work. It's good. It's just not great. Well, see, I have this thing where, I don't know, like this maybe lately, I'm really, really anti-minimalism. Like, I'm tired of it. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm over it. I don't really... It doesn't do anything for me. I think people say it accomplishes so much by just sitting back and just letting it... It's easy. It's too easy. It's freaking easy, and that's that's it's why it's really hard for me to actually go back in time, really, and place myself in the yeah nineteen ninety four where everything was just overbearing synth, you know, just blared all throughout eighties an pop and everything. And I feel that there was a the place for this was right here, right now. And I think that having done that mentally. It's, it's it's not just that it's not just time and place where i think he would be like irrelevant now and i just dismiss the artist at all but i do think it's important to consider perhaps because by retreating back into the bare bones Basics without going like, you know, the way punk did when I'm just going to do eight notes Like I said, that is not this album. I do think at times he plays around with like alright Let's really thin it down completely and then build it back up when we get these crescendos And it gives you room to play around with that which actually is exactly what Jeff Buckley did um, The contemporary so right and I think for me though. There's a little
0: bit of like knowledge that I gained from being in 2018 listening to this that I relate to it more than I might have at that time, only because there's I hear a much heavier influence of folk than I may have noticed back then in the 90s. Whereas now, being as familiar with the Decemberists and other folks, Ben Folds 5, these bands that have dabbled in folk or that are straight up folk, I can hear a lot of that
1: stuff that I might not have pinpointed in prior listens earlier when I, I was younger. I, well... Um Said that depends on where you're coming from because if you were in the it's 90s, then you thing. would be like, Oh, there's a lot of folk that's all of a sudden being infused in rock. Whereas in the 70s, they were clearly two separate things, yeah. Like they dabbled on occasion, but really, it's the 90s where they just mingled and blended. Well, it was called southern rock back in the 70s, like that was where you nah, got that. That's the not folk even the rock. kind of folk I'm talking about. Oh, uh, I, I know, I know, but that was the only time they really married together too heavily. But like, even an example in this album where it just barely starts to creep into rock out of what I. I guess I'd really generally call folk now. Track one, for instance, Rum Candle self-titled. Like, you have this rolling guitar bass that is very just ah, I'm on the open plains and then all of a sudden you get this source of color and that's the one electric guitar that just kind of adds this little whirring... but it's a dissonance, right? It, it, it clashes with the rolling guitar and everything just... It's, you're just pondering at this stage. It's not... I can't even really call that verse-chorus structure at all because it's just it sets the stage for the album But then you dive into Condor Avenue and this is where you get rid of like you don't have any other instrumentation I think apart from the the dual guitars that are going to each ear But then he he makes it so involving that I just don't hear that in regular folk. It's something I think it's more the melody that's pulling me back toward rock And I think that's really more what we, what we think of like rather than just straight-up Instrumentation when we think of general genre types like that. It's 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 those tendencies more so than it is the instruments you happen to be using at such time. Yeah, sure, he plays guitar. So does everyone else in the world. And they don't, they don't, usually don't stay with one genre and usually don't get uh, pigeonholed. Well, yeah, and I
0: think for me, clearly the, um...
1: The vocals are
0: what I think are the most standout-ish, we'd all agree, like his style of singing is definitely what gets my attention the most, and I, I love the kind of highs and lows, but he never gets really bassy, it's, it's all within this kind of middle playfulness that he does with his voice. Well, he gets creative with it, but there's not like this huge disparaging range between his high and his low. He tends to no. stay in this kind of same mid range, but still plays with what he's got. A sleepy mid range. Yeah. That's what I think is, is very pro- sleepy. Yeah, I
2: think that's probably the most uh, alluring factor in his vocal style. Is that I don't, for all my critiques of, I'm not really enjoying the lyrics per se. I don't need a whole lot of the lyrical work at this. I mean, like I said, we're diving in for a little bit here. This is his introduction to the world, at least as a solo artist. So being a little bit sleepy, being a little bit more dreamlike, especially because we aren't going to have like tiny little bits to dive into on any of the fronts that are going on right here, on the lyrical side, on the musical side, on the vocal side. I disagree with that.
1: I, I know you're really going to disagree. Give me a minute. We're going to have a Condor Avenue moment here.
2: Yeah, give me a minute. We don't have to dive in too heavily to really start peeling back that many layers. There's not many layers to deal with. So being in a more dreamlike quality, you're allowed to just zone out to it and still be able to get the full experience. It's it's a combination of being ambient and being attentive at the same time, which is very hard to pull off. And being able to just like sit back, enjoy it, and not pay attention, but still get... 90% of what's going on there without really using your front... the front part of your mind is pretty cool. It's pretty awesome.
1: Uh, alright. You kind of brought me back in the end there. At least with that point. But... but I, I think you're asking for specifics and, like, things that do leap out in the moment. And, uh... I do think it is like maybe one layer deep. So let's just talk about a few specifics here. I'm gonna play a little bit of Condor Avenue at the moment, in fact, because there was a reason I was really obsessed with this track for a good amount of time. Um and it wasn't just because of the songwriting structure I mentioned before, it actually was. It wasn't just because of his voice either, it actually was because of the guitars and the kinetic energy, I suppose, of these this sort of I don't want to say dueling guitar, because they're working together, they're working in tandem, it almost feels like one engine. But you hear one kind of offset in the left ear from the one that's going on in the right ear, it feels like they were almost, like, they're in their own little round. And that's what keeps it, like, just chugging along. Um, and it it, it pops, like, the crispness of this, really, again, for only track two in the in the debut album here, it's, it's not much instrumentation to deal with. You don't have anything else that's going to, like, interject in here. I think it just dwelled with these two. The only other thing you have is the vocals. And so then what are you noticing in the vocals after the fact? In general, it just sounds like a nice bouncy melody, but the melody itself is like bouncy, Offset by one beat from the bounciness of the guitars and that itself just keeps everything It keeps the spaces that would otherwise be these like tight gaps where you go from Ah phrase one is going to boom phrase two and then section one or rather verse one goes to boom chorus one You don't have those those tight gaps everything feels like a free-flowing engine and that's uh I think I noticed that at a time in which I wasn't even really as attuned to these kind of things. I just knew that there was something out there, some reason, why I really liked the song. And I realized it after the fact that it all does come back to the songwriting itself.
0: Well, yeah. Also, I think with that song, we start to get the hints of stuff that we notice way more in his second and third album, which is some of the built-in dissonance he creates with the instruments, like you talking about them being... the the guitars being sort of around, but the reason that they didn't feel... Like they were in sync, but not in sync because of that dissonance. Like you could hear that kind of tonal difference that made them stand apart from each other, even though they were working together. The dissonance is coming from the
1: vocals. That too. Yeah. But then there was um there was a bridge also just like tacked on at the tail end, which also again you could have just if if you blink you could miss it. Yeah, you could miss it, or you blink your ears, I guess. Blink your ears. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Which is possible. I've done it. (laughs) You miss beats. You miss certain chord changes. But in this case, it's almost like. It, it, you could, it could fool you as being another chorus, but he, it's clear he's singing a little bit differently. And it's like the last stretch of this track where he just sings this, your Oldsmobile driving by the moon, headlights burning right ahead of you. And the way he just rises right there, I love this moment. And in general, there are moments, even in the track and of course in the album as a whole, where he gets a little bit whiny, but this is another aspect of his vocals that I like. He's got so much inflection in general, he does- he's trying to convey so many emotions over the course of the I mean, apart from just simply mopey, because there's a lot of aspects to mopeyness. It can't just be mopey. It's very complex <laughs> reasons why you would end up a mopey figure. And in general, it, it makes me ignore things that I otherwise would find distasteful, where I hear a whiny tendency. I'm like, oh, God, that's so 90s. And I was always like, even if in the this early 2000s. was the 90s. <laughs> whatever. That's, that's, that's besides the point, because I wasn't listening in the 90s, because I'm fair. younger than you. That's Never true. Li- Or in, in this case, I've known him longer. So whatever. Whatever. The point is... Point is if you're doing everything at once, then I don't really care. Because, yeah. sure, you're going to be whined, but the next you're kind of going to be elated. And I find that elated motion right there in the headlights burning right in front of you. Uh, it's nice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. It's good music. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that as a
0: whole, my my summation of the first record is, again, I like the through line and the fact that I can lose myself in it. That could be considered a negative, which I think John took it a little bit more that he kind of got lost in it a little bit to its detriment, like he lost his place. Whereas for me, because I did a lot of listening to it on the train or at home in like my bedroom, it was like I could kind of drift off with it, which made me feel more one with the record, so to speak, if that makes sense. Actually, I wouldn't
2: say it was just a detriment. I'd say it's a positive and a negative, which I think is kind of inherent for Elliot Smith. like. Everything I've listened to by him. Now, I I say there's positives and negatives, and a lot of times they are the same damn thing.
0: It just affects you two ways. Well,
2: you can take them both ways. Roman Candle, perfect example of I love being able to just listen to it in the background and get sucked into it for a little while and drift along with the sleepy, dreamlike quality that's going on. At the same time, I want to be engaged more, and this sleepy, dreamlike quality just doesn't do it for me. I need a little bit more meat to get into. one of the worst culprits
1: on this uh, best and worst, I guess. No names. Yeah, the four no names. Yeah, this is weird. I think I I don't I can't speak to this specifically I think maybe they were just named that way because they were like sitting in a pile and he had I wrote had them somewhere to put them. I don't recorded. Know. I mean, but them I there. that diminishes in a way Which is yeah. why yeah your your lead-in was accurate because it's like there are Gems here and they're also at the same time just kind of there and they fill up space yeah. and time in this in this debut um like, Matt, you mentioned uh, No Name 2 was yeah. a really standout as one for you. Well, yeah, um, because I think it, it, it was the one that...
0: It didn't necessarily deviate from the others, but it had the most character to me. It had the most moments for me that
1: I could easily remember, whereas the others tended to blend. Well, it's funny Sort is, of. It's, the way it started, it seemed like such a light track itself, but then you get that harmonica hook. That, mm-hmm. da-da, da-da, da-da. It's nice, but then it's interspersed with these... Um, Let's call him, like, a dose of disdain. Mm Like, I'm right here on the ground, strip of wet concrete. This, like, it's almost evil. And then he continues, Her name was just a broken sound. A stutter step you hear when you're fallen down. Great lyrics already. And I, I I don't know, I just find myself just losing myself in this track. But I agree, maybe not to the extent that I lose myself, perhaps more negatively, in the other no-names. Like, No Name 3 is still a great... Track, But I I kind of just I float over it. Yeah, um, and that's that's not necessarily negative I just I could see how on their own some of these tracks would suffer and feel insubstantial But on the album scale, I think it's a positive because you could just sit back on a cliff face and look out No, actually no, this is bedroom music This is bedroom music that's more so than because everything there's no reverb on a lot of this stuff. So yeah. it's just like isolated and and soft and cushiony and, and all around your head. <laughs> mopey. Yeah. And mopey.
0: But I will say, it's interesting that 1, 2, and 3 are together, and then I believe 4 is only one song separated. Yeah. And so, and and 4 doesn't sound that terribly different from the first 3. Like, it, it it's the same kind of different than the others are. Like, there's a little bit of a difference but it still fits the rest of it, so it was curious to separate that one. I don't know if that was a conscious decision because he just wanted to break it up a bit. He wanted those three to be like a trifecta. It's interesting that they were separated, but I couldn't
1: analytically decide on why. I just noticed that it was, which is fine. They're numbered they're not connected in a way, which is why I was like, I almost wanted to write the No Name Trilogy, but then it's like, wait, the No Name Trilogy, Plus, plus one, plus one, and then plus or one two albums later. later. Right, exactly. It's really weird. But, Quintology. Uh, yeah. Quintology. S- something like a mismatched, yeah. non sequential. Sort of like well, they're Star still Wars. Sequential, sort of like Star Wars. The waltzes aren't sequential. Two, okay, you get yeah. two, then you get yeah, one. We'll get two. Ah, that, that's later. So, and <laughs> that's then you later. get one. Yeah. Uh, I have one more thing I need to point out here because No Name Four, even though that was later in the album, I did like it. Like, yeah. that, that was <laughs> as strong as, as number two to me. Um,. Because of the... I mean, I'm hesitant to mention this yet, but it's an early example of it. We're going to get it a little, late, a little bit later. It's a huge Beatles element to yeah. this track, I thought. Not like rock at all, but the chord progressions, the particular falsetto choice that he, that he took here, that, that route, it's just screaming Beatles. It's not like... It's from the side of the Beatles, I think, that was pulling maybe from more of the American stuff. Like, yeah. it's the American stuff it that was went the to the Beatles. the brighter stuff, yeah. Yeah, but then it, that went back to America, so... And in this case, it, just, it comes down to, again, the singular moments here, moments like in the choruses that, again, creep up on you before you realize they're there, and it's only once he gets inside of it that you're like, oh, crap, this is an amazing chorus. So he starts off it with, packed it up and didn't look back, just packed it up and, just the beginning of these phrases are where he really climaxes, and then the rest of the chorus is not so much a climax, he kind of spends the majority of the time deteriorating, and that's what I really like. He does the same thing one chorus later, like this one here, and her alone nobody near so just that her alone amazing moment as well um, you can hear all this stuff in this episode right here right now you're hearing it I'll play another one there I did it wow the magic of the computer of editing right yeah, of editing. <laughs> next album next album alright <laughs> Elliot Smith self titled is this even thinner than the first album to start no no? no. Okay, certain areas,
2: to you. Certain areas definitely felt a little bit thinner, but at the same time, he was... Okay, eighth notes are the big thing on this one. And then I, I saw a lot of paring down the guitar work in the previous album, but this one, yeah, it's like...
1: It's like he needed just to do something with his hands at times. It, it actually but, brought me back, like nostalgia-wise, it brought me back to, I think, when I was first going through this discography, and it was my first, like, no, I'm all about Roman Candle. I'm not about Elliot Smith. Because <laughs> Elliot Smith, the, the self-title just started off with the straight eighth notes, and I've really never liked that in my life.
2: But damn, this, this it does album things. starts it does off with, uh, first off, one of the few tracks I actually recognized in this entire discography. Mm-hmm. The only one I actually knew was Elliot Smith. Needle in the Hay, which uh, has. Yeah, okay, sure.
1: A lot of basic guitar work. Only in the beginning. Only in the beginning. And then you get the moment. You get, the, you get that, that more. Uh, that that side of him that is just like screaming to break free of all this rigidity that he set and out there. I won't say screaming. All right, all right, yeah, but he's. pleading. Pleading, yeah, pleading to. forcing himself, himself but he doesn't scream. He can't no. scream.
2: No. Because when he's doing this thing. chorus, oof. Uh, it's it's unnerving and intoxicating. It is phenomenal. One of the
1: best best lines he does in his entire career, in my opinion. However, I he, love this chorus. I got one more later, but this is uh yeah, it's it's creepy. I think the end result is kind of creepy. Because
2: um, especially the fourth rendition of each chorus, when he goes to needle in the hay and he he chops it up, it's no longer a free flowing uh, piece. It's it's. Halting, except, hey, of course, hey, he has to trail off and make into his ghostly little spiderwebs. That's not the only thing that's going on here that I think is a big turn for the plus. The lyrical work, in my opinion, significant upstep. Significantly better. I am particularly fond of the third verse, especially how it ends. I can't be myself, I can't be myself, and I don't want to talk. I'm taking the cure so I can be quiet wherever I want, so leave me alone. You ought to be proud that I'm getting good marks. The content of this, uh, this track in particular, is, if I'm not mistaken, about heroin. I love that he's (laughs) really throwing in some great imagery. It's not the only track
1: about heroin. (laughs) But it's
2: it's great imagery. That's what I think was really missing, in my opinion, in the previous album. It's like the imagery did not feel like it was particularly deep for me. Wow. It was, there were good lyrics, don't get me wrong, but they weren't they weren't particularly uh, provocative or evocative of what i wanted it to be married to
1: this this is working this is so good you know it's funny because that's always um that's, that's a taste that, thing. that's, always, that's well, a full tasting for me there were a lot of you know 90s music uh movies that just was so into the heroin thing because it was the new scary drug and so everyone was just like exploring this this dismal state that could drive you to be so immensely dependent you know on a particular drug and i i it's weird for me because the tracks almost And this is not just for Elliot smith but in general they almost plead for empathy like Mm -hmm. they want to find someone to be empathetic with their with their position and of course the second you are empathetic they always say like the first dose of heroin you try like this is not a gateway drug once you try it the first time you're down you're just dead like they say it it's it's actually so addictive that the very first time can be it for you depending upon your willpower and That's really tough to be empathetic with unless you're already there, in which case, like, you can't say, oh, yeah, I skirted with that at one point in time. I'm with you, Elliot Smith. You either understand it or you don't. Right. And that's a weird, like, built-in arm's length position to be in. Sure, but I can empathize with feeling like something is
0: out of your control, even though, of course, logically it very much is. And so that I can relate to this idea that this addictive drug, of course, you can just stop. Logically, like I, that. Logically, you just stop and you stop. Well, but actually, no,
2: co- no. That's that's not even true in this case because if you stop, you could die. That's true. But Flat out, you can that's die. That's true. From stopping this drug, that's the worst part about it.
0: Uh, but there's this this feeling that I can relate to of feeling like things have gotten out of control, or you know, something you need so badly. Medically or otherwise, that you could die without it. No, you're right. You I, know, I, I, I can relate to I that part of do it. Do
1: not think that like the only fans of Elliot Smith were heroin addicts. No, of course. But I, I uh, yeah, you you have to like just extend. You have to change the round the song to be your its own thing for you. Which of course is not unique. Everybody does that. But it means you really got to step away from what we want to do to all these tracks and be like, yeah, that is what he's saying. I get that specifically. You need to make it the metaphor that we hope he tried to make it for everybody.
0: I want to go back to something you said earlier um, about this record versus the first record as we continue to go through it. I was in the same position that Steve was all those years ago, kind of feeling like I preferred Roman Candle, but upon multiple listens... I did. This album did grow on me, though. I did notice those eighth notes and the more repetitive guitar work more here. I think because the with improved production value, there's a, there's also going to be an easier way to notice things
1: you may have lost in the muddiness before. Well, like for example, there's one thing I want to say more about the uh, beginning of the album here. I don't want to spend too much time in this, but I, I can't overlook track two. Like Christian Brothers is stronger than. um the needle in the hay for me. Maybe John would disagree, but this is a track Maybe. that all right, <laughs> he loves that track. Anyway, the, it, it's it's weird because it has almost the same pattern to start off. It sticks with the yeah, you get the eighth notes. It could be like a punk edge almost in the beginning, but damn, this is where like the the the, the mopiness, I can't think of any other word, but it's just it breathes here. Such a twangy guitar solo further into the middle, but it, the, it's the tearful climaxes that really really get me. Starting from like just a. Opening lyrics no bad dream fuckers gonna boss me around Christian brother gonna take him down But it can't help me get over don't be cross this sick I want I've seen the boss blink on and off again the way he sings here He has a way of making melodic climaxes in such a way that I don't need the instrumentation to right. follow in, in, in suit I really just need him to, to, to sing and that's it, it stands above the rest I mean there's, there is a cooperation, but it's, it's really more about his vocals than anything else. Uh, I mean, I would say that's consistent with all
0: of his work for me, and I'll talk about that more actually when we get to the third record. But his vocals are what kept me engaged the music got me curious but the vocals is what yeah. kept me and
1: then like in most simple, situations a simple choice of doing it twice later on for yeah. instance he, he does the same melodic pattern later on by saying the same line don't be cross the sick i want he holds that last that last note um i've seen the boss blink on and off holds that last note does the same thing with a different set of lyrics here And uh, one of those instances, actually, where just dropping an F-bomb in the track, you know, is not seen to me as, like, tacky, like a pleading kind of choice. But it works here because he says, Come here by me i want you here nightmares become me it's so fucking clear and you, there's like grit in this well because there's a sense of true frustration in yeah. the use of that word vocally that sells it i think it, it's at the point where actually i don't even feel like i'm me because i hate that style actually in so much punk that this yeah. is not punk this yeah. goes to show it's really more the music than than any choice in the world i don't care how uh, brash you decide to be or how off color you decide to be all i care about is the music that surrounds it um, and it makes you, I think, color things negatively if, let's say, you had a bad experience with the music. Here, I'm having a good experience, so I'm having a good time. Actually, a lot of people were having a good time about this because the entire album,
2: just about, with maybe Ugh. one or two exceptions, is is a combination of uh, alcohol abuse and heroin abuse. Uh, too good, right? Too good. Uh, you, too you good set a set time. Yeah you, you, yeah, you set me up with that. You T-balled it, man. <laughs> I mean, when you look at that, oh, okay. Let's, I go, mean, let's go through the list. Christian Brothers. Type of brandy, right? And it's all about you know drinking a lot and standing up to somebody and using that courage that you get from Liquid the alcohol yeah. to tr- to to turn yourself into someone strong enough and then realizing by becoming the drunkard and the demon in the bottle type of a thing what it affects you and now you're the bad guy and all sorts of stuff like that mm. in about sixteen lines of content, which yeah. is pretty awesome that he did that. But um, okay, Saint Ida's heaven which is a, one of my favorites on this album. St. Ives' is malt liquor, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, in fact, the first lines are about him going to 7-Eleven and drinking it all night. Uh, the white lady loves you more, and if there was a bigger euphemism of heroin, I don't know it. Yeah, that one's would, that would pretty <laughs> on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Or um, Coming Up Roses was another one that actually, I think, had some of the best imagery for, the, for what's going on in this album. The Precourse. The moon is a sickle cell. It'll kill you in time. Your cold white brother writing your blood like spun glass in sore eyes. I
1: wrote that one down, too. That I was, love
2: that line. I stuff. love the imagery of these lyrics, which is why when I look at Roman Candle, I'm like, that's right. cool. There's good well, lines. This has some really heavy use of a thesaurus, at
0: least. Well, you have to think also with Roman Candle being the debut in this album, the follow up. And he's been through a lot in a short period of time and clearly already started struggling with stuff very soon. I mean, it's no secret he had demons and that it, when
1: you really put a microscope to this album, you see a lot of them pretty early. The funny thing is, of course, coming up Roses musically, you know, it, it it's built so enigmatically mm. and that in, in such a way that there are moments where I'm like, oh, it's almost a cheerful track. It's or at least a pleasant track. Yeah. And uh, it's it's built that way. It's built, the lie is built into it. Um, denial is built into it. Uh, there are even interesting things, uh, since you're mentioning Saint Ides. It's almost like I feel like we've come full circle with these thin, strummy intros. Like, I like the production of the track, even though rhythmically it's not too interesting for me. But it, again, builds to these climaxes and gains, not momentum, but it gains space. And that becomes the climax. It gains, like, there's all this, the ride will, will will be tapped and it gets louder and louder and louder not not like super loud where it's like a crash it's simple but it's a, it just it starts filling everything and so it gives the illusion that there is more space where it had been silent and then all of a sudden once it stops on a dime it goes back to that silent enclosed sensation that you have uh, in so many other tracks here, so you 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 gain once as you gain that that high end that associated with the ride, you gain more space in the room. It's just a nice a, a nice acoustic effect. Well, I think what really completes it is that thing you said where it just cuts, it just stops. Yeah, gives you that real sense of space because it's like easier to recognize it once it's gone. Yeah, and also it's more like he's back to his own mind in, in that yeah. moment, you know, where he's like branching he's out and then kind of recessing yeah. back like in. You could just, I mean, you could it could be a whole bunch of things. It could be yeah. he's back to reality where he had been, you know in the state of the drug anything yeah no Um, there's a lot of things and i think that musically
0: and vocally he does that kind of trick i guess we'll call it a lot
1: and it works really well because he utilizes it in interesting places and ways almost every time i have only one nitpick about the very last track here uh the biggest lie right only one nitpick and it's a single line single line i'm waiting for the train the subway that only goes one way that's just a shitty line. I don't know. No, no, why? I know what you're thinking. You know why? Because everyone thinks of that at a certain time and thinks, damn, that's a great metaphor. Because you're waiting for the subway and you're like, oh, train going in every direction. But my... it's just so easy to associate I that guess. with everything in your life. Now, I have two stories to this effect. One was the fact that when I was 16, I wrote the first couple of chapters of what was clearly to be my magnum opus as a 16 year old. Would would see it and the novel was called Life. <laughs> <laughs> wow, dude. And one character <laughs> no, 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 no. hipster before hipster. One were character no, 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 over. was hey. waiting for the train, getting all introspective, and was like, everywhere I turned, trains charging ahead in every direction but mine. Now fast forward years later, and I have my friend Steph. She moved to Boston for the first time, having come from a small upstate town, and she was a subway commuter for the first time in her life. And then she said that if she ever wrote a novel, it would be called It's Never the D. Everyone thinks of this, and other people have said it to me too. And they post it on their Facebook statuses. I'm so introspective, and blah, blah, blah. Right, I expect better, from Elliot Smith. But I will say, I kind of expect that.
0: From Steve. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Damn it. That was definitely a predictable rant. But no, I mean I guess I'm more lenient on the obvious introspection because that's about as far as my brain can get, because I am not a songwriter, so I relate to it, but I hear your I hear your point. You're not you're not incorrect in how common that is. Very well. Either or? Yes. So the third record, John brought up an interesting point that I, I wanna talk about here and we'll talk about again at the end. But w- John labeled uh, Elliot Smith's career as we listened to it as his his two early albums, his mid like three part career. The first two albums is part one. The third album is part two, and then the last two is part three. And the issues I have with the first part is I want more. I want more death,
2: and I'm starting to get it. Yeah, I I definitely got more in the self-titled than I did in Roman Candle, in that I felt like there was more attention to lyrical work. There was definitely more experimentation with the actual music itself. There's more instruments showing up, but I want more. I want bigger
1: depth. I want more layers to peel back. But there is less integration in this album, and that that is the interesting thing, because it almost as if he's actually saying, well, you can either have this, or, or that. that. Well, what's but yet you can't... They, they're not going to blend. They're not going to be the same side. They're not all going to, like, jive into the same Elliot Smith. Um, which, I don't know. I don't know if that was part and parcel of what he meant. But it's uh, it, it is almost like... He went deeper down the rabbit hole in some respects. There are times he almost gets full-on slowcore. I prefaced that early when I, in my introduction. He really was never slowcore, though, in those previous two albums. There are times here where he gets to that point, where it starts to breach into low territory here. And this is, of course, years before I, I ever even heard of low as a band, even though, again, they were contemporaries and doing stuff really around the same time. It's so almost as if there was some like back and forth there. But it's like a, a slowcore album bracketing a Warm, crusty Beatles center, right where it's actually the more uplifting, rock-heavy side of the Beatles. Not like heavy, heavy, but almost happy-go-lucky. And I, I see almost two personalities like diverging here, like I don't the know. pop hits from Rubber Soul and Revolver and that sort of era of the yeah. Beatles before they got really
0: weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, a sense, the thing that's interesting about either/or is so like we've been pretty clear about. The personalities of the first two records. Even if we agree with what we like and don't, the personalities are pretty clear. Either or almost feels a little schizophrenic, intentionally. Like that's why it's either or because it's either or part of his personality. That's way. I and it. The, and there's a conflict here, which is why we have that buttery, creamy Beatles center because. There is joy in his life, but it's kind of surrounded by the darker side of things. Actually, the perfect example of the duality that's in this album to my ears is
2: Pictures of Me. I would agree. Like the back and forth between just just the fact that the, the, the track itself is pretty segmented between two different musical styles, even though it's got almost the same exact melody throughout, almost exactly the same rhythm. Like, it doesn't really actually change anything. The approach to its presentation is so dramatically different in the beginning
1: and the end. See, Pictures of Me is a weird track. It's hard for me to even, like, talk about that track in an Elliott Smith conversation because it is like, it is as if Mr. Blue Sky was covered by Simon and Garfunkel. I know. And it's it, just it's it, odd. It's, it's, it's really odd. Um, but I mean, by the end, it's really back to that Beatles-esque thing. It's actually like maybe I don't know. It's, it's. it's I'll admit it's maybe the first rock song, like of his that is un, unequivocally rock that I actually really do enjoy in his discography, like unabashedly. But it's not. It's not. I, I hate getting involved in these. It's not Elliot Smith conversations, but it's weird. I mean, his true. It, it is. Also, why his third album, to have the It's Not Elliot Smith conversation, I think it's still too soon to have that. Sure, but uh, this we're having a retrospective conversation oh, well, right. years yes. and years later, yes. and I yes. I look back and I, I hear a certain thing when I think of him, and it wasn't yeah. this, it wasn't really this. That's fair.
2: But I think it still actually is. Like, at the end of the day, everything that's done in either or, and I know that there's a lot of weird things that show up in either or compared to, the, well, compared to all the other weird, uh, it's... It still feels like it's, at the core, just him playing around with stuff. And I think this is what I really wanted in the first two albums that finally gets delivered here. He starts truly experimenting with his repertoire, with his stuff, with his music. He he starts introducing a little bit more variety in the instrumentation. He starts introducing a little bit more variety in the genres that he's drawing from. Like we were saying, it's still identifiably his vocals, his... His styles, his lyrical choices. I feel like they're even becoming more flushed out and more expressive in what he's delivering on both aspects of,
1: of his voice. Alameda is a good example, actually, yeah. of a track, this track two, um, where I think he's it's a more natural blend of all the separate things we've seen. Folk meets alt rock meets that melody Beatles throwback, uh, the well-mixed falsetto, drums, slowcore, lo-fi, it, it kind of all comes together here with the higher production that of course increases as you'd expect with every record. Um, and I do really love how the chorus goes right back to the verse around like 1 minute 31 seconds. It almost like it's interrupted and just snaps back. Um, and self-doubled vocals that, you know, that, that affect, like if you say, if, if you put the same file, but like you offset it by like 0.001 millisecond or something like that, you have like a odd buzzing sensation accompanying your I don't know it's almost like that almost that he did that.
0: Well yeah and I mean because of that it almost sounds like it's not even both him. Like it obviously is Maybe, both I him. Don't know. No it is obviously both him cuz when you focus in on it you can tell but if you let your ears wander just a little you get that offset feeling and I think also the thing here for me which allowed me to stay with this album a little more easily than maybe Steve did is because his vocals are still consistent with his previous work. No matter how much he experiments and even does new things with his vocals, it's still within that Elliott Smith range that sounds familiar and is comforting or, you know, saddening or whatever it is. It doesn't hurt that for, to my ears, this is where, like, the production quality
2: really hits its stride. I think it finally Uh is at... Like the best it can possibly be for the
0: grittiness he still tries
2: to contain in his voice. Well, because I think his
0: songwriting he doesn't gloss rose. It up. Yeah, yeah, his songwriting rose to meet that production. I think there was always a level of skill that was mostly hidden behind just like. It, the fact he doesn't have multi
2: million dollars to spend right. with a premier album, the same way that you have after a couple of bigger hits, you got a label backing you up, you got some yeah. money now to actually spend on this sort of stuff. Yeah. So he's got the money. We assume. He's, we assume. I'm assuming if he's yes, not spending it on others. It is a, a different label <laughs> by know. this point. Um, he's 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 got more tools to work with, and he's working them. Um, it actually is, I'm bringing this point up now because it becomes a point of contention a little bit later on for me in his discography. Uh, it's also, I think, with with pieces like Pictures of Me, I I love that track, but that that track right there to the end of the album, but maybe even more honed in on Punch and Judy, Onward, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That section of this particular album, I think it's like... To my ears, the best point of his entire career. It is the high point for me. That that Those five tracks in a row are just,
0: one after another, phenomenal. Well, I think for me, and I agree, but I think for me the reason why it is for me is because it reminds me of the tightness of the first record, but with the experimentation and exploratory songwriting of this current record. With I mean, the, the production of me, quality
2: of what he needed back then to
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I really got into that last part of the album, I think, more so than the rest of the record. Pictures of Me, specifically, is probably my favorite—definitely one of my favorite songs by Elliot Smith, and for sure my favorite song on that record. Uh, I Pictures of
2: Me is, is very, very—I love it. I know. But Cupid's Trick
0: I know. is definitely it, it, the best on the album. It's really Cupid a— song, is really, really good. It's a Sophie's Choice on that last tail run of the record because all of the songs are so good and so well made— but for me, there was something that just resonated in pictures of me, and I think it comes down to taste at that point. I don't think it was that objectively it was a better track. Um, I think it's just for me I connected on, in a way with that track that I didn't on the other tracks, even though they were absolutely phenomenal.
2: Well, it's also because it's right in the middle of this, these five tracks I'm talking about. Uh-huh. If it, it felt built up to and then led away from yeah. with those five tracks. It was... the Really the first you time. Mean I mean 8,
1: hit, 9, 10, 11, 12, right?
2: Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah. From punch to say yes. I agree. Like those those five with Cupid's trick right in the middle. Cupid felt like the crescendo of yeah. these five pieces. And it felt like it naturally flowed. Yeah. Not to say his his stuff didn't flow before. I mean Dreamscape of the first album was maybe a little bit too much flow. But in right. this case, the music evolves as we go track by track, but I don't feel any hiccups whatsoever. I feel like it's a very natural progression from one to the next. I
1: believe, so this is kind of important because I believe the um, track one actually has a very similar tone as these last fives. By bracketing, you get like that that slow, almost like slow Corey sound that I think really, in many ways, maybe it does. I, I might agree with you on this, that it's like the height of his... Uh, I don't want to say like his career, but like the sound that I think of, I think is best exemplified by those six tracks. And if you add the first one Um, with the only exception, maybe being track four between the bars, because at that moment, it's almost back to whispery thin. And it almost feels like that's the height of his romance. Like if he was going to get more romantic than everything else we've been describing. But it's just it's weird that it's surrounded by all this other stuff, you know, track two, track three. Uh, track five, even really, yeah, track six and seven. No name five is is odd because it it feels like a mature version of like the no names that we heard back on album one, but like it it's ingested with a maybe healthy amount of Pink Floyd almost in like the the not so psychedelic side of Pink Floyd, like right. the other the other parts that were n- and more chorusy. I don't know. It's it was definitely it, affected by the increased production value in a way that I think separates it from the other four versions but it was still a sleepy track It's weird that it had that like almost pop edge it's just it's it's strange that i think the back and forth here is really what kind of throws me for a loop on on either or which makes it hard to to completely immerse myself the way i really do want to in those last five tracks but it's just i've been i've been thrown for a loop a few times I, I mean, think you know, on me, an album scale that 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 hurts it a little
0: bit, and I think for me on the album scale it was something to look forward to. Like I enjoyed the earlier tracks, but I really love the end, so I like going on the ride, sort of a th- maybe yeah.
1: something. Two forty five a.m. was almost definitely written at that hour. Yeah, oh for sure. Oh man,
2: and that's where uh, cut, where, printed, finished, <laughs> <laughs> done. <laughs> Be- yeah, between uh, Cupid's trick and two forty five, like it wasn't just. It wasn't just like low end stuff. It wasn't low key. There was so much energy involved was, in some no, of this right. stuff. Yeah.
0: It's, it's a weird, different kind of energy. But
2: but you're right in that it feels like it's bracketed by some low key stuff. Because those tracks felt like a natural rise in the energy, and then the way they tapered off afterwards is no, what brought
1: me down without giving me like a sugar rush or something like that. They're gentler tracks, I think, all things considered, but they they feel more impactful, and that's the energy. It's not like, yeah. it's not energy energy. It ain't, well, yeah, we're not. It's not Mr. Blue Sky. It's <laughs> not Mr. Blue Guy, yeah. Track, <laughs> uh, excuse me, album for XO. So this is where,
0: like I said earlier, and I'm stealing John's words, three-part career. So this is in part three, phase three. These are the last two records he put out when he was alive. Um, XO is the fourth. So I don't outright hate the album. I mean, first of all, he's never, as far as I'm concerned, knowing his discography, he's never written a bad song. There's no songs that I hate. In fact, at worst, like... They're good
2: for what they are. Like, they're... Isolated. They're good, they're good Beatles songs. Right. Or they're good Pink Floyd. But I, mean, I you will You can come say, up with a lot of different bands that this guy has been like. But it's... At, at this point...
0: The first I'm track like, of this record left me with a lot of question marks when it, when I first heard it. Because. And I think I know where the big
2: issue for me is. It's also kind of like the big issue for you. Either or was... Uh, an album of two beasts. There was two different identities there, but the identities did interact with one another Mm -hmm. and they felt like they were just two halves of a whole. Either or being a perfect title for that kind of an idea. Mm -hmm. In XO, I feel like we're going at it from
1: like half a dozen different angles. Half a dozen different ideas are showing up here of what the album is supposed to represent. With only one common thread, and that is that it feels, and don't take this in a cruel way, it feels like, he really wants to be a rock artist here yeah and then and like that i'm not saying he wasn't rock we had this discussion already earlier in the episode like that's sure why not it's all rock but like there was such a low-fi edge there that it, it didn't like i don't think of that word even you know i barely even thought of folk i just thought of him and and i don't think i feel him in a lot of these tracks that's just a weird, I, maybe side effect, of, of trying to dabble in so many different things, because, oh, the top of the list right here, uh, pushing a few tracks ahead, because this is the one that just stood out like a sore thumb, Baby Britain. This was, this was a Ben Folds track, Completely, it almost felt like in a time period where Ben Folds did exist doing this, which, which is weird because actually you see the you see the genealogy there because yeah. Ben Folds, in his own way, pulled from the Beatles. So here he is also kind of pulling from the Beatles, but it's just that because they landed in the same generation, it's almost like they landed in the same place. But for Elliot Smith, it's a dabbling kind of thing, and yeah. he does play piano. We heard earlier on, all right, he plays piano proficiently. Um, Although the word proficiently is also bandied around a lot on Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah. I
0: mean, but so the thing about that track, I think specifically for me is because I'm way more well versed in Ben Folds, I am eager to immediately say it sounds like a Ben Folds track, Ben Folds 5 specifically. But someone who's not as well versed may not get that. And it doesn't seem, I don't think it's completely out of left field for Elliott Smith. but But I would argue that knowing his tone
1: beforehand... But beyond the lyrics, it feels a little odd. It's more that they happen to have similar falsettos, and he had a piano all right. of a sudden, and that I think is the crux of it. Just piano, yeah,
2: the guitar, yeah. which was almost an identifying marker for his vocal style, was the guitar being paired with it. The guitar, t- the guitar is just gone. Yeah, why is it just gone? I mean, I don't that know was, it was, was gone. so. It was especially for the beginning. Uh,
0: yeah, it was it mostly was, piano in the beginning.
2: It, it, I, I identified. Smith's voice with his guitar as much as just his voice because the guitar that he always chose to work around with even when it was becoming more forceful or when it was taking on a little bit of an electric twinge or something like that it still felt like a part of his body was playing it. The piano him sitting down at a piano and just going along with that feels a little bit alien to me or at least sounds a little bit alien for what if I, I've already identified as his accompanying sound.
0: Yeah, there's an and expectation that, here that's broken.
2: And and but I'm, I will call you out, Steve, on one thing: Baby Britain is not the weird track, Waltz Number Two, which actually yeah. predates Waltz Number it's, One later yeah. on in the album. Waltz Number Two really is the weirdest. Now you're on right. this album. Yeah. I understand. It is a waltz, and waltz number one, I actually listened to much more favorably later on in the yeah. album, because it felt like he infused a lot more of, of him into it. It's waltz two is a but it's almost it's like a, a good
1: waltz. It's like a circus waltz almost, though, for a while. And I actually really I, I agree. I need to kind of like hit this with a few jabs, like. Kick, snare, snare, kick, snare, snare, like, the enter electric guitar, enter piano, enter the bass that is, ah, Paul McCartney, and it's just, uh, it's too happy. I I mean, uh, I don't want to, like, restrict his moods. It, it's, here's the, here's the only deal. It's not so much that I don't like experimentation in these other things, but John actually put it pretty, pretty well on the way over here, and it was that the ways in which he experiments are going back 30 years. Yeah. So that's weird. Like, if... Why, if you're gonna experiment, then maybe dabble with something that is also maybe contemporary and and pushing. But this wasn't pushing at the moment. It's uh it's it's a little bit of a static flow and i i not really see what it accomplished in the broad
0: i mean but think about in the broad at that time though not a ton of people were go, were reaching back like that there were some
1: bands but like yeah, that's not true the 90s was full of throwbacks like in really bizarre ways i'll grant you like barbershop quartet was really big for some reason that's uh, true. so it was a bit briefly I'll be, briefly, yeah. as well as um, Big Band and Swing, for some reason, was like, I think people like to bring that into a lot of, Well, like, yeah, Brian
0: Setzer yeah. became really big again yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, no, like, you're right. I guess what I'm thinking is, I keep forgetting that he's in the 90s. For whatever reason, I want to place this record because of the odd shift in the 2000s, yeah. when it was a few years before. I would actually even go the opposite direction with some of the things he
2: chose. Like, okay, Bottle Up and Explode. Easily the favorite track I got on this album. Yeah, me too. Um, I love the inclusion of strings. As much as I'm not a big fan of the piano work that gets done in there, strings are close enough to the guitar that they actually blend extremely well, and they definitely complement his vocals.
0: Well, yeah, the orchestral strings, I think, for me, I mean, I'm a sucker for that anyway, just in general with music. But the way it mixes with his vocals... Uh, not only makes his vocals pop in an interesting way but also blend really well like it makes them step forward but they're integrated in a really great way
2: but the track that immediately follows it up a question mark had had the sort of oh. uh, it was it was it was odd to say uh, in in the smallest amount
1: cuz it, it was like it, early 60s like this no a,
2: no it no? felt like it felt like elvis At one point, like straight out of Ocean's Eleven, a little more conversation, a little more action. So
1: 50s is the early? 50s. 50s. Here I thought you were going to be like later, and he's like, no, no, no. earlier.
2: But take that. (laughs) You know, Elvis
1: still did things in the early 60s. No,
2: no, but I'm saying like rock and roll from that era, right before it became classic rock and was still just rock and roll. Take that, but you have a, a chorus that feels like it's straight out of. Out of like a grunge mantra, like it was a weird combination of the two put together. So you give him credit for trying something. It, it is
1: a weird blend, but and
2: it, it actually it's still like I said, it's a good song. Like no, yeah. he didn't write a bad song. It just did not a feel like it was part of an album here, and B didn't quite feel Elliott Smith specifically.
0: Well, yeah, I think uh, with a lot of songs on this record, for me in a vacuum, isolated, I can enjoy them. Um, I think that the flow, like these are songs that I would pluck a few songs to put on a playlist. I don't think I would listen this album from start to finish just because it just, it puts me off a little bit. And it's, again, not bad songwriting. I don't think Elliot, like I said earlier, I don't think Elliot Smith has ever written a bad song. I just think that here it pulled me out of the mood more yeah, than anything that, else. You know, I went to his stuff for the mood of it once I started listening to it. And w- album one, two, and three. Though three is split, they all have clear moods. Clear moods that, and the third album is schizophrenic, but you can still find those two moods. Here, he jumps all over the place, and it just is super
1: inconsistent for me. Okay, so we're not big on XO apparently. No. Album five, figure eight. Uh, What year is this? This 2000. 2000. 2000 even. All right. Um, His final record that was released, the final record released while he was still alive. All right. This is a weird animal because in some ways, I want to equate a lot of this to XO. But in other ways, this has some of my favorite songs he ever wrote. Yeah. This is another
0: vacuum situation where specific songs, like you mentioned the song that you heard on Mr. Robot. That was Everything Means Nothing to Me. That's a really great song, but I listen to that and don't immediately go, based on my previous experience, that's an Elliot Smith song. The vocals for sure, but the song itself, I'm like, interesting. Yet stuff like Someone That I Used to Know and
2: even Son of Sam, the first two tracks, they they were him sort of a little bit more on the folk folk side with yeah. a little bit of infusion of rock yeah this in, in To my ears, this album was a, was more coherent than XO because I only found three genres really represented throughout the
0: whole It piece. felt less schizophrenic, yeah. It did feel like there was, there was sort of a back and forth.
1: Yeah, Color f- Bars was like a more old-school folk rock. Uh, happiness Gondola Man kind of went into like a more Pink Floyd thing. Um, um, and then there was Country spurs throughout yep. this yeah. album. It was oh, a
2: weird beast because th- you won't really say country, folk, and rock are really that far apart from one another. But when they kind of do get isolated, when you go from everything means nothing to me to L.A. to In the Lost and Found, Honky Beach, like oh. In the Lost and
1: Found, Honky Beach is just an odd duck. All right, that's my least favorite track of his, like yeah. discography-wise, actually. Um, just didn't get it. Just thought it was awkward, like honky tonk. Really, that that's far fetched. Even like even for him his, and his style, yeah,
0: far fetched. It just felt like a leap. It's like when you know, uh Rockstar tries rapping just to try it. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes it can work, but sometimes it doesn't. It's, this is one of those moments where again, it's not I wouldn't say it's written
1: poorly, but it's definitely odd, especially put against the rest of his music. It also had a, a an, an album quirk, a feature that uh, like has been implemented on so many other albums, though maybe in my experience after this, nevertheless it's the same effect for me, and it's just that little coda, the, yeah, the gondola like, Man. The, it's it's titled well, not just Gondola Man, but also Honky Honky Bach the Roost, and the Roost starts playing. Well, actually, no, that wasn't more of a coda. That was more of a dual track. But yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't. It, it, it was did, the short of the two.
2: Yes, and it did work fairly well for itself. But the Gondola Man, was, you're right. I'm more thinking of Gondola.
1: Gondola Man. The, the Gondola Man was just out of out of left. That was field. just like a coda tacked onto what was otherwise, I guess, a fairly normal Ellie's yeah, track. The
0: ha- happiness was not bizarre to me. There was a production value hike a bit, but, but see, it I've,
1: otherwise felt like his stuff. I've never seen what that accomplishes, though. Yeah. With, like, adding a coda that has nothing to do with it, is it supposed to be like a, hey, you had a mood, right? We just set you up with a mood. Now let's warp it into something differently. But you couldn't you just do that with a second track. Well, like and the also, track.
0: or an interlude. I mean, the thing is also the coda didn't have any lyrics. Like, if there was a lyrical yeah. connection, like there were d- dreary or mopey lyrics over this very static... Strange sound, it might be different, but because it's just instrumentation and it's fairly flat, it just seems odd and kind of really stands out. Yeah. But
2: like this album still had stuff that was identifiably him, like everything means nothing to me. Right. The chorus, which is not really a chorus. It's just him saying everything means nothing to me was everything just... Everything
0: means nothing to me. But it was
2: just like Needle in the Hay. Yeah, the yeah.
0: vocal style.
2: And it wasn't just like Needle in the Hay. Like, he deadpan... Well, no, okay, not deadpan, but doesn't waver in his delivery of everything means, means nothing to yeah. me over about 20-ish iterations. Yeah, he just keeps repeating yet, it. yet, about halfway
1: through it, he just kicks it with the music that's... Mm-hmm. Just, so satisfying it is an yeah. incredible point that was an amazing moment I even need to just preface that with saying like why the whole thing is it, it is like glued together for me in a way that like you might think of course saying the same line with the same inflection over and over might get trying and well even on its own it's it's pretty impactful because if you say over and over everything means nothing to me you start to think yeah everything really means nothing and you start to get pretty you know existential well, repeating words as mean, times go lose on. meaning too well they lose meaning in this case I think they almost gain meaning because okay. of the fact that you like written into that phrase is is inherent existentialism and the more and more you say it the truer it becomes and the less you start to feel about everyone and everything around you and that's amazing but then how is it how is it framed like what's the context for any of this and it's just the chord changes it's it's just those chord changes. I wish I had mapped this out, but it just—it it plunks every single one from from. Uh like staring into space from, from zoning out into all of a sudden mulling to utter despair to hope back to despair it's like each of, each one of those chord changes in, written into it is all of those emotions and yet you're saying the same thing and that's a really interesting dynamic when I feel feel like in general our experience with music is more that the music keeps the same tone and the lyrics are changing your perception, right? It's complete inverse here And then you get 12 iterations of that before you get that- that burst that Sean's talking about. And so, after all those motions, then it's like you need a catharsis to break you out of that, either in one direction or another. You're gonna do something better, you're gonna, you know, do something good and fix your life, and you just need to emote for a second, right? Because you've been- you've been kept inside this horrible, uh, shell. You- you're his plaything! And then all of a sudden, you get to explode and- and- well, that, instrument, amazing. that instrumentation is rep- representative of an
0: outburst, almost like just freaking out for a moment. That's and catharsis. That, yeah, yeah. And well, so that's why I'm agreeing that that catharsis has that power, and the instrumentation totally carries that. It might be the only crescendo, like true musical term crescendo,
2: in his like repertoire up to this point.
1: Well, I did describe a few earlier, but in such sparing, like. In his usual it's a, lo-fi minimalist yeah, way. This is the most wanted like, powerful. Like remember how I described the the ride, the the crash symbol right yeah. now. He just, he just like I don't even think it is a crescendo. You just interpret it that way because like what did we gain? We didn't gain volume. We gained space. Right. <laughs> like, this is volume. Yeah. This is yeah. all out and out. And it was a hell of a period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it's so it's, I I would like to remember this album for this track obviously.
0: Yeah, but the problem is for me is that. That track is the one that stands out the most. There are other moments throughout the record that stand out. Like, we talked about I, color bars. I can also like, kind
1: of talk about uh, Everything Reminds Me of Her being, you know, the precursor to this track. I which mean, it was I a did. great lead-in. In retrospect, having, you know, I guess for a good while only heard Everything Means Nothing to Me, then I was like, all right, that, that song is on its own. But I do think it needed a little bit of building up, too. And you did get that in Everything Reminds Me of Her. It also frames what, what prompted the song, you know? And what he's dealing with specifically, so yeah,
0: I, I think that my <laughs> biggest struggle with this record. At the t- so here's the the thing I want to say about Elliot Smith. If you've not heard Elliot Smith before, you might want to start with this record, only because I think it would be less stark of a shakeup. If you heard it first, because it has smatterings of what his earlier stuff is. And you might lean into the earlier stuff just the same. I would actually, I'd argue that. Only yeah. because I think just, uh, I'm going to be a stickler about the
2: production quality of his first album, Roman Candle, being so rough. Yeah. And so unrefined It is actually as much of a negative as it is a positive. Yeah, okay. I would love to hear it probably, you know, with... a like $5 million extra worth of stuff thrown into it, it probably would have sounded a lot better. But at the same time, it shows a very young person working with very limited tools, creating something that ended up being not masterful, not yet, not at that point, but something that definitely shows... It showed promise. Not just showed promise, but shows that there is a masterful mind behind it. Because by the time I got to either or, either or... it's not a Bach masterpiece. We're not Beethoven here. We're not it's not gonna go down in the annals that, of history, all what, right? What about Hunky Bach? <laughs> as I was saying, it's not gonna go down in the annals of history as a a pivotal point of music, but it is an incredible, just solid album yeah. through and through. And like Matt said, and I think Steve said as well, or he's gonna insinuate later, <laughs> it's not his best track by track comparison to the rest of his career. It, it, it does not have his singular best work, but for me, it is the most cohesive piece he created, even though it is two sides of a different coin. It, it, it has two different identities, but these identities do come from the same person, and that's pretty amazing.
1: That is pretty amazing. Yeah. It also shows that he did, you know, like, you know, I said before that it might sound cruel to suggest that, oh, here's a guy who wants to be a rock artist, you know? And I don't mean it in that way. I mean it more in the sense that he clearly had those abilities, but I think he spent a lot more time, you know, on the introspective folk stuff. And I think that whenever you spend more time on one thing than another, that you just get better at it. And so he got so good at at that one thing that when people think of Elliot Smith they're going to think of that before they think of the thing that kind of sounds like Ben Folds who spent a lot of time on his stuff right so the two tracks here or, or five maybe when you get combined the last couple of albums that sound closer to that in a more like free-wheeling rock atmosphere despite mm-hmm. whatever he was saying and whatever message might have been underpinning that or or tearing it down it was just a veneer or whatever that but point is it's it's just a few tracks you know he didn't get really far with it he's okay at it but like i'll probably go to ben folds for that stuff cuz he's got albums worth um and i i think that's what really for me, it leads me back to album one. I don't mean to be cliched to say, like, oh, his debut. I only go for the the original Elliott Smith album. Right. It's not, that's not really what it's about. I actually, I think in the course of this project, found a lot of appreciation for that second one, yeah. for Elliott Smith, in ways that are surprising. Because they start off with things that I'm like, ah, that's only okay musically, but I see the bigger picture of yeah. what he was trying. He went deeper down rabbit holes, but he doesn't give it away in the beginning of those tracks And so clearly when I was younger, I was looking at that second album with a a two-on-the-surface mindset. Yeah, I think for me, Roman Candle will always be my favorite album
0: because the through-line listen is always the strongest. As far as album listens go, that's the album I want to listen to. That said, I love the majority of either or, but it just doesn't have the same kind of through-line that that first record has. And that's because it couldn't. It wouldn't be either or if it did. Yeah. And I totally understand that. Whereas the later albums, I'm picking songs here and there. Like I'm not listening through those records. It just it doesn't grab me in the same way. Well,
1: I, I also approach the the immersion atmosphere yeah. like so. In other words, if I get one thing, I might as well we keep it going. You know, don't like break me out of it needlessly. That was the idea. Right. So I'm just gonna take a few minutes to um, address the elephant in the room. Obviously, we lost Elliott Smith pretty tragically um in a couple years after uh this was released um the figure eight that is so that was 2000 2003 yeah he went in a similar way not all not Flat out similar to Kurt Cobain, but since you brought it up, yeah, you you think about it similarly. First of all, the question of whether it was suicide or homicide, because, of course, you had the girlfriend who was in the house who says heard him screaming. And then the police investigated and they found suspicious little things like there's there's a suicide note, you know, that Mm. seems to point to that it was definitely Elliot Smith who who did it himself. But then, like, he misspelt Elliot you know, like why would someone misspell their own name? Mm. But then it kind of came back around that no, that was in the report. It wasn't actually. In other words, the person who took the report of the piece of evidence took it took it His down wrong, wrong in the report. But not, not the, the evidence note. should be should be fine. Um, but then there was like another thing: are there hesitation wounds? Two stab wounds. Like yeah. it's not the common way to go no. if you can, of course. But like. There are hesitation wounds, a thing in forensics where as much as you're committed to, you know, offering yourself, then there's always, like, the body's not actually prepared for it, and you will will flinch. You will flinch when the act is actually performed. And so there's, like, a a thing you're looking at, which is hesitation wounds. And there were none, which either means that he was, you know, just really committed or, you know, that it wasn't that. It was homicide after all. Anyway, people love to get involved in that stuff. I'm not terribly, like, it was interesting, I suppose, just to read about it years after the fact. I didn't really follow this at the time in 2003, but... It, uh, but. Uh,
0: needless to say, it's a tragedy, but to the, say, de- yeah. the, the details, you know, we're not here to, to pick those
1: apart. We're, we're here to pick apart, of course, the music, and that's why there's only one more album, which we're not going to go into because we have reasons why it's not... Um, it was only half completed. This is not the first time this has happened. Somebody yeah. dies halfway through a work, or in this case, maybe forty to sixty percent through a work. There are elements of this that were done, and it is from a basement on a hill. It was actually intended to be a double album. We were going to get like thirty tracks. sudden. but it same. ended up
0: only being fifteen. Ended
1: up only being fifteen because uh, his. Producer who he had worked with uh, along with his girlfriend were left with the task of going through the stuff and like, you know, picking apart what what were they going to assemble. There was no order to any of this. It was just works that were somewhere along the line in completion and uh, maybe they didn't have vocals. I don't know how they managed to put that in. But they did produce a, a 15-track album about a year after his death yeah. from a basement on a hill. I have sparse things to say about this i can only say one thing that this actually has one of my other like top top close to top favorite tracks and it's called king's crossing because it's an it's a track that i didn't hear in the collection of the mix i heard it like in the way john said like he heard this track separately and didn't know it was elliott smith kind of like that or i i i heard it and i knew it was elliott smith i just didn't have an album to place it on it's weird now thinking that was like in this posthumous release yeah that's a little weird but king's crossing was a pretty amazing track because it actually i think and i don't know if this is because of the production that was done after the fact i think it is actually a huge success in blending together a lot of the things that we said were kind of iffy on both figure eight and xo so just one of those mythological things could he have been on this this perfect train where he was like his next album would have actually solved all of those problems that we had in those last two we will never know but I do have King's Crossing and I think it's an amazing song I would recommend it the rest of the album you have to just take with a grain of salt it's a bit production high production heavy because I think necessarily it has to be Right. because they're they're filling in gaps and you have to you don't know what's him what's not and that's really none of our business. I mean, I didn't have a ton of
0: experience with that record because it wasn't on our list of the ones that we were going to go over. I did listen to a little bit, but I was really into, as of this recording a few years back, they were uh, Timberland and Justin Timberlake worked together to release a new Michael Jackson record. Previously unrecorded vocal, uh, unreleased vocals with scratch tracks that they fully produced into full pop songs that I thought was a really great record. But ultimately, you're listening to it and you're going, well, it sounds like Michael Jackson, but is it really? Because he didn't produce this. He yeah, just yeah. sang. And so, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, it's not really him. Whereas I listen to the record, I was like, it sounds like Michael Jackson. To me, it's a Michael Jackson record. But that said, it was his best album in a long time, I think, because he wasn't producing it. And so that's my hesitance with this record is I think it's so coherent because fan it's a fan project essentially. His producer and his girlfriend ha- have the best of intentions in mind and also are looking at the best of his work to influence how to create this work. And so it's going to be lar- almost larger than life because he's not actually, there are no flaws with it because he's not working on it. The artist is inherently flawed and those flaws build the character that is their music. And I think there's not really any of that. Here, because it's it's mixed by people who are not him. I concur. Yeah, you know, I think that it's it's the idea of doing a remix project. You're going to pay tribute to the artist that you're remixing because you're inspired by them. There's a sense of that here, and which is why I agree with Steve that it isn't part of the actual pantheon.
1: I think uh, that's a good opportunity to focus on the guy's life, right? <laughs> and yeah. His actual work, which uh, I think we had a pretty good uh, pretty good run today. Let's go for some recommendations. Yeah. Would you like to start, John? I would love to start because, okay, we kind of talked these these
2: two tracks to death. Everything Means Nothing to Me and Needle in the Hay. Needle in the Hay, after the second self-titled album, I love how he shows the repetition of the chorus and the. finally I really feel like he was coming into his own with some of his lyrical work here. But it's the tiny little inflections and tiny little touches that he throws on top of it, which really transform uh, a very simple chorus into something that becomes, like I said, intoxicating and unnerving, both of them. I could not get enough and I was creeped out by it. It was amazing. But then you look at something that's very similarly set up with everything means nothing to me. In fact, even the further extent of it in that the repetition is, 15, 20 times, it's not four times, but he shows that again, subtlety as we go along and the words remain exactly the same, the inflection remains exactly the same. He he has such a deft hand at crafting the little melodic changes to make the overall meaning and the overall feeling dramatically change. But when you compare the two, while they are accomplishing very similar things with very similar ways, in Elliott Smith, that album, it, it's very represented in Needle in the Hay because it's very minimalistic for him. It's very pared down, it's very quiet, very low-key. While Everything Means Nothing to Me actually does have a crescendo. It does have a lot more integration. It's, it's both sides of the world of what I really wanted out of him. I wanted him to stay true to himself and be quiet and be melodic and be just... Uh, um, a small voice in the back of my head, and at the same time, I'm getting a great, just grandstanding kind of a moment of, of both being introspective and out there in the world yelling out. It was, it's, it exemplifies the two halves of the problem I had with these this grouping of albums that I kind of set up in the beginning. He wasn't quite doing enough, but he showed me with Needle in the Hay that you can do a lot with a little. And at the end, he was doing a little bit too much yet. Everything Means Nothing does a lot, a lot more than he. I really expected him to be able to do, and he does it beautifully.
0: So uh, I made it pretty clear that the first record is still my favorite. I think uh, as we discussed it, I wanna go back to Either Or and listen to it more because I think there's more for me to pull from it. Um, but my first song recommendation is the title track and first track on Roman Candle, which is, Roman Candle. There's something about the way this song starts for me that really revs me up, even though all in all this album is pretty low key. There's just a um, subdued intensity, which almost sounds like an oxymoron to this opening though, you know. You get really a sense of his style all from those early notes and the early vocals, um, you know. And he there's not a lot of superficiality as far as frills to really kind of get wrapped up in. You're just focusing on the guitar, his voice, what he's thinking, the lyrics aren't overly complicated, they're very face value. You get, a lot of people bandy around words like raw
2: describing something like this because it is very raw and very uncut and unclean, but that gives a sort of credibility to the honesty of the artist.
0: I hate using the word honesty, but yeah, there's definitely a natural, of the time and of his experience in this track, from the way it kind of plays straight through. His vocals have the variety, which is of course what we've talked about. Um, you get a strong sense of the intricacy he works within his range from this first track on his first album that really sets the stage for everything for this record and the rest of his career. I mean. Everything that he does, even the Odd odd Duck stuff, really builds off of what's here at its base molecules in Roman Candle. Which is definitely why it's my first recommendation, because it's a strong starting point. Even though I hinted at the fact that you could start with the new album, too. I think you have to start at the bookends. You can't start with either or, because you'll just be confused. You have to go on one end or the other. Literally. Yeah. And then... My second recommendation is actually from Either Or. Even though I mentioned at length that Pictures of Me is one of my favorite tracks on the record, I think in the run that John kept talking about, the reason Cupid's Trick is not my favorite is because my recommendation, Angelus, is. There's just something about the way he frames this song along this run, especially after Punch and Judy, that just sets me at ease. Even though the whole album is kind of like the struggle, I definitely do feel at ease with Angelus. It, it it makes me feel reminiscent. I kind of let my mind wander a little bit, not unlike my favorite record of his, Roman Candle. Angelus clearly, of course, reminds me of that, because that's the strength we spoke to. And I think of this run, it's the most closely tied to what I loved most about that first record, which is why I focused in on it. But that said, I think it just also, as the as the second song in this five-song run, really creates a backbone that every track afterwards builds on. I think the strength in Cupid's Trick is because of how beautiful Angelus is and and the groundwork it lays that allows your mind to drift through this whole run of
1: music. Very good. Yeah, I, um... I think, in the interest of just having a good spread of tracks to recommend right now, I'm because uh, you had some good ones, John. I think both of yours are, are really, really worth recommending here. Matt, you're you're fine, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm gonna use this as an opportunity, I guess, to really reiterate one of the tracks that I've liked the entire time I've known Elliot Smith's work, and then another that I've adopted here so let's first go back to roman candle and go for the second track you like roman candle self-titled well i like always like the track that followed and that is condor avenue i think it's more of a songwriting experiment in a way it's like it's not that it's extremely experimental track but just everything about the fact that it is such a pared-down album, and frankly, for many of the tracks that wind up being very almost depressing and moping, they plod along, and it, it gives the album, really, its own... its own... life that it's... He makes subtle, little pushes toward wanting to, to liven up the personality a little bit, uh, musically speaking, and uh, it's interesting that he decides album, an album later, two albums later, to go all out with that, and really introduce the, the more rock-heavy tracks, um, and the throwbacks to lighter things. But it's interesting that in this album, I like a track that does that only so subtly, and that is Condor Avenue, because it's it's a bouncy track that I like more for his approach with the phrasing than anything else. And it it ties itself well together and allows you to focus on the small things. It allows you to focus on the way the guitars are partitioned, the slightly offset beat. It allows you to focus on the way his, his voice is actually offset, even from those two guitars in question. The little bridge at the end, the way the climaxes that don't even feel like climaxes because it's all so fluid. I love songwriting styles that are not partitioned, that don't sound like, let's go to a next section, cue the the thing, you know? <laughs> and it just, it, it glides, and I, I feel like I'm on Condor Avenue, I don't even, I don't need to think about very much, except just all the little goings-on, the particulars of this very, very pared-down, yet slightly lighter than the rest of the Mopey album songwriting. So yeah, that's still a strong one for me, always will be. But then I got into, I think more, much more so in this round here, just got into an album that I was only iffy on in the beginning, and that is his self-titled Elliott Smith. And a, a huge, huge track that I completely overlooked was Christian Brothers. I, I don't I didn't even think I could remember like what that track sounded like until I got to the chorus, and I realized the chorus is this is slowcore at its at its its finest, really, even though he doesn't spend a lot of time on that. So in a way, really, even this track is kind of different for most of him, but it's, it's, it reminds me now so intensely of Low, and it sounds like it could be one of the greatest Low tracks, and unlike... I think I really appreciate this, really, in retrospect. If you look at the fact that we said all these negative things about how he's almost been, you know, he's trying to be Ben Fold, but it's like a weaker version of Ben Fold. Well, he out-lows low. <laughs> <laughs> so, guess he's what? He's a better Lowe Th- than Lowe. That's right. He, he, As far as I'm concerned, like that, he equaled out. He canceled out the other thing, you know, and you still got all those tracks there that are just flat-out Elliot Smith. But I love this as, a, as an experiment that succeeded intensely. That Those lines in the chorus that go, don't be cross, the sick I want, I've seen the boss blink on and off. But of course, it's just that that held note at the end that rises up in, please, for some kind of sanity, to be brought back down to, to, to something. And, uh, well, uh, he goes a number of directions, but while he's there, I just feel the moment. I feel the moment so intensely. Come here by me, I want you here. Nightmares become me, it's so fucking clear. Good stuff. Good stuff. Highly recommend. Um, would definitely recommend him as an artist, yeah, I um, agree. if even not for the amazing songs that we just went through. Yeah,
0: I think as a whole, though, his discography moves pretty quick, too. Like, again, yeah. good songwriter, even if you're not into all of the places he goes. So I think it's a pretty easy listen for anyone, even if you're not, not super sure about that kind of music. Yeah. I would recommend it to anyone who even hasn't listened to a lot of folk or rock. I think that this is something that you could kind of get into, especially if you like emotional work, because exactly. there's a lot to draw from I wish there. I could go back in yeah. time and tell my 15-year-old self to pick this stuff up. Yeah, for sure. it would have been perfect. I would have absolutely listened to this in the 90s if I had realized. Real oh, yeah, that's right. You were 15 in the I was, 90s. I was 15, actually, I wasn't in the 90s. 15 in the 90s. No. So,
1: it's okay. I'm old. It's fine. Old old, old, older, oldest sitting yeah. across from me. It's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, well... The Music A to Z podcast is hosted by Steve Nagel, John Sanders, and Matt Storm. It is produced by Steve Ferguson and sponsored by Nathan Ferguson of The Pollinate Show. Now in version two, you can check out our other works at pollinate and nshgfilms.com, douggcferguson.com, and stevengcferguson.ca.